Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello and welcome to Spawned, a common sense, generally fun, and hopefully helpful discussion on parenting and parenting culture. Hey, I'm Kristen Chase, and I'm the co-founder of CoolMomPicks.com. Today, it's a very special data nerd episode. Yes, I'm chatting with Emily Oster about her new book, The Family Firm. And well, let's just say, you'll see why I'm calling it the data nerd episode when you listen. And of course, the irony is that our resident data nerd is not with us today. Liz will be back next week. So don't you worry about that. And as always, we will close out our show with our cool picks of the week. And we'll be right back with Emily after this. This episode of Spawned is brought to you by Verbo, which you may know as VRBO. They recently shared the Verbo 2022 trend report with helpful information related to family travel that we think you'll be glad to know about. Get this, half of families said they're more likely to let their kids decide where they vacation compared to pre-pandemic times. 43% of parents are more likely to let their kids skip school for a vacation, and one in three are more likely to let their kids bring a friend on vacation. Though parents want to indulge their children on vacation, they are maximizing that quality time together. 61% of parents said they're more likely to require their kids to disconnect from devices on vacation. The pandemic has been tough on families, especially kids, and it has given parents a greater appreciation for vacation time and spending quality time away together. Visit Verbo to plan your next family vacation and check out the 2022 Verbo Trend Report to learn more about the latest trends in family travel. Go to VRBO.com. That's V-R-B-O, Verbo.com. All right, so let me tell you a little bit about our guest. Emily Oster is a professor of economics at Brown University and the author of Expecting Better, Crib Sheet, and The Family Firm. She holds a PhD in economics from Harvard. Prior to being at Brown, she was on the faculty at the University of Chicago Booth School of Business. Oster lives in Providence, Rhode Island with her husband, also an economist, and her two kids. Welcome, Emily. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, I am so excited to talk to you about this book because I feel like you were speaking my language and I'm sure I'm not the first person to say that, but I want to talk first about some of the work that you've done that's been very specific to the pandemic. We always do a little research on our guests. And of course, you know, the Vox.com headline that reads how Emily Oster became one of the most respected and reviled voices of the pandemic. And I was like, hmm, I wonder how she feels about that. And then I was like, oh, I'm going to talk to her. So I'm going to ask her, how do you feel about that? piece in the headline. Uh, I mean, I like the piece. Um, It's always hard to read stuff about yourself. Mm -hmm. This idea that there's controversy around particularly work I did around schools is something that, you know, by the time they wrote that headline, I was aware that as my therapist once told me, uh, you're not everybody's cup of tea. (laughs) So, so, you know, I think that that reflected some of the general tenor that surrounded particularly that school work.
work. Well, what was interesting though, is it's not necessarily or really at all your opinion. I mean, you were really looking at the hard data. It's sort of like, don't hate the messenger kind of thing. I don't know. What, what are your thoughts on that? So I think one of the things that happened was that, you know, there was some period in which there was some disagreement about the question of whether opening schools was safe or not. And I think I came out earlier than other people because of things that we were seeing in the data that we were collecting and, and other things I perceived out of the data. I came out earlier than other people saying, you know, hey, this is safe. And I think a lot of people at that time were still in the range of like, oh, I don't know, like, can we really say that? And then later, I think it became clear that schools could be operated safely, but the sort of feeling of like, oh, maybe you were out doing this first persisted. Well, that makes sense. You know, I'm grateful for your work. I have kids in school and it was a tough decision after spending a year uh, in charter online school and thinking about putting my kids back, especially I live in the now infamous, I, I say that whatever, but uh, Central Bucks School Board District area, ah. which was on the Daily. Oh, I listened. I listened ah, to that episode of the yes. Daily. Okay, I feel like I know everything about your school district. Yeah, now. yeah, you because probably I listened do. to forty minutes of the Daily. <laughs> well, I sat through about six hours or seven hours yeah. of school board meetings, and let me just say, yes, you probably do. In those forty minutes, you probably gathered enough about what's been going on. And one of the big issues, of course, has been masking. And you have a recent piece about masking, and I know that it's probably raised some eyebrows. Which let's talk about that for a second. Because the headline is very sexy. I get it. I'm a writer. You know, we run a website. We get the like, we need to grab people. But really the findings were from what I read. And I don't know if a lot of people are reading to the end, but it was basically like, yeah, it seems like masks at this point are a good idea. You know, the ability for them to express emotions is hindered. But did I get that correct? Like, tell me a little bit more about that. Yeah. So in that piece, I wanted to talk about the sort of other side of the masking. So we spent a lot of time talking about to what extent our mask protective against COVID and trying to suss that out. And is it different for schools and different kinds of masks and so on? But then there's a sort of other side of it, which is, you know, to what extent are there downsides? And I just wanted to dial into that and help people try to understand. You know, I hear a lot from parents like, is my kid never going to learn to speak? Are they never going to be able to read emotions? Will they never have any friends because they're wearing masks? And the piece sort of dives into that and I think comes to the conclusion that on net, it's not ideal for people to wear masks forever. And there are reasons to think we would eventually eventually want to remove them, but the effects are probably fairly small. Mm -hmm. It also, mm -hmm. I tried to make a little bit clear sort of where they're more likely to be effects. I think it's particularly probably with younger kids where there's more of a learning to speak, learning to read, learning to read emotions relative to say a 12 or 13 year old who may be less hindered in that way. Yeah. You know, we're getting so much information that is varied, number one, but it's also developing as we go. Right. And I remember actually speaking of the school board, you know, there was someone that was was like, first they're telling us to do this and then they're telling us to do this. I mean, actually, he did sound like a Muppet. So my voice is pretty <laughs> yeah. close to accurate. That was really accurate. Okay. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. But that's not on purpose. Like that's because we yeah. have not encountered this before. And so I imagine as a researcher, right, you're seeing that as well, maybe that like what we once thought was actual is not actual. And the belief about this is not necessarily the case. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Because I think as parents, it's so hard to know what information to use to help us make our decisions and explain to our kids why yesterday 
we thought this. <laughs> and today we're actually moving in a different direction. I think that you have hit on what for me is among the most significant failures in the pandemic, which is you're talking about communicating that to your kids. But let's take a step back. I think some of what happened is when public health officials tried to communicate with people, they failed to communicate any uncertainty or nuance. Mm-hmm, so that mm-hmm. led to exactly the thing that you did the wonderful Muppet voice about, which is the feeling among many people like you told me not to wear a mask. Then you told me to wear a mask. Then you told me not to wear a mask. Then you told me to wear a mask. Mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm. and all of those messages were conveyed with a sense of certainty yes. when the reality was at all of those moments, there was uncertainty, mm-hmm. right? Because it's new and it's totally understandable. The fact that there's uncertainty is not the criticism. The issue is that when we fail to communicate that, people feel that they are being jerked around. And it would have, in my view, been more helpful if we had communicated some of these things around, you know, say the impacts of vaccines on transmission or the impacts of masks on transmission or whatever it is, if we convey that with more nuance. I agree. I mean, the vaccines is a great example. And I'll use, you know, speaking to my kids, right, particularly my 14 year old son who is like, okay, I did everything that everybody said to do. I have my vaccines. I'm wearing my mask at school. And okay, why again are people with vaccines getting COVID? And I'm like, okay, let's start from the very beginning. Like, you know, like the Sound Uh of Music and Julie Anders and say that actually... That was never the intent of the vaccine, right? It's about hospitalization and severe illness, not necessarily not getting it. But I feel like that little piece of misinformation has been really challenging, at least from a parenting perspective, when we're all trying to convince, at least I am and my family, trying to convince my kids that like this is a good thing and that we need to get vaccinated. But then they're like, wait a second, people are still getting it. And you're just like, yes, but. And it would have been nice to kind of have that pushed very strong you know, the truth of the matter is, and I don't know if you agree with this, had that been said, I wonder if people would have been even more or less likely to not get it, right? Because they're like, eh, I'm going to get it anyway. To be honest, that's what I'm dealing with with my mom. That uh-huh. is her argument. Essentially, she's like, well, I'm going to get it with a vaccine. So why get the vaccine? Which I really hate that argument as we all go into Thanksgiving yeah. and have to deal yeah, with our not, families. It seems not amazing. <laughs> yeah, this interesting question of if we had been more transparent about what we could expect from the vaccines, like how would that have affected uptake? But I don't think it's obvious actually, because I think one of the things was that we came in and said vaccines, you know, are protective against hospitalization and death. And also they're going to protect you against getting it. And you'll be in like a super bubble. And that was actually not inconsistent with the data we saw at the time. But for almost anybody who sort of reflected on like how vaccine immunity works, it should have been clear. We should expect some breakthrough cases. Mm -hmm. Then when that happened, I think people felt lied to. Yes. They felt like you have been pushing these vaccines. You have been telling me like these vaccines are like my get out of jail free card. And now actually it turns out you can get COVID. And then people had to do something which felt like stepping back. I mean, like, no, no, no. What I meant was They protect against serious illness and death. You know, so I think that, again, we oversold and then we had to walk back and walking back is also really damaging uh, in a lot of ways to trust. Yes, there are certainly a lot of lessons learned. And as a parent, you're a parent as well. We're all dealing with that in one way or another. Absolutely. But let's talk about the data and how it really has informed your book, The Family Firm, right? It's really centered around that. And I love data, but I also feel like there's so much nuance to parenting that we can miss a lot, right? If we just 
look at the stats. And so I want to know your thoughts on that as a researcher, as someone who has written something that's very data-driven. How do we as parents balance that with the nuance that is parenting human beings? It's very interesting because, you know, this is the third book. And my first book on pregnancy is very kind of data forward. The second book on young kids also has a tremendous amount of data, although, you know, leans a little bit more into the idea that, you know, actually your preferences for what you want your decisions to be like also should play an important role. The family firm, which is about parenting in the school age years, includes a lot of data. Um, and there's a lot of, I think, very interesting stuff in there. I thought it was interesting, which we could talk about, but also really steps back and says in this age group, it's actually really hard to look to data to solve any of your questions. I mean, there's occasional small things where you'd be like, okay, the data is really informative on that. But for many things like what school to choose, how much extracurriculars can make kid do, like what should they do this summer? Should they do the musical? Should they go on the school trip to Washington, D.C.? Just to name some things that are currently on my mind. Um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> There is no data that's going to help you with that. It's a question of nuance. It's about what's your kid like. It's about what the circumstances are like that your family is facing. So in some ways, this book is actually much more about kind of decision processes than it is about data, or at least as much about decision making as it is about data, recognizing that the circumstances that we face and the things that are true about our kids require more nuance. And we can't really look to a piece of data and say, okay, that tells me like the answer to the question, you know, is this the right school for my kid? And you have a system, right? So you're not saying that there's nuance and giving data and then leaving people hanging. You have a system, you, it's the four system that really will help parents make those decisions that are fraught in many ways, you know, school and when to start school and summer camp is a big one. And what's interesting, let's just say about summer camp is that you don't realize how big of a deal it is. I feel like until yeah. your kids are summer camp age, and then you're like, oh my goodness, like <laughs> this is such yeah. a big deal. Can you talk about the four F's? I think our listeners would really appreciate just a quick summary. Of course, everything's in your book, which yeah. we will link up on cool mom picks. But if you could just kind of go through that framework, I think that would be super helpful. Yeah. So this is a sort of framework, as you say, kind of intended to make some of these larger decisions. The first F is to frame the question, to be very explicit about the options and to not have your question be like, should my kid go to summer camp or not? Because like, or not is not an activity that they can do with in the summer. You really want to be very explicit about your choices. Second F is fact find, which is get some data, get some logistics, take some time to get all of the information you need to make the decision, get it all at once and try to do that without making the decision at each point. So really have a step of the decision that's I'm going to get all the information. I'm going to resist making the choice as I get the information. I'm going to get the information all at once. And then I'm going to move on to the step that is final decision where you, where you and your partner, you and your partner and your kid sit down, having gotten all the information, make the decision and then try to move forward. And the fourth F is follow-up. The idea there is to recognize that for almost all the choices we make, including things that seem like very big choices, like what school should I go to? Probably there is an opportunity to rethink that decision and that we should create that space explicitly so if you choose, you know, a particular summer camp or a particular approach to the summer sometime in the fall, 
you should have some time put on the calendar to revisit and say, hey, was that a good thing to have done? Should we do something else? Because otherwise, I think we end up in a sort of hysteresis and we just do the same things all the time. And then we wake up one morning and realize actually nobody enjoyed that summer camp and we should have, <laughs> we, should, we shouldn't have done it, but uh, we kept, you know, we kept doing it. So it's kind of a way to try to avoid that. Yeah, I love that actually, because, you know, sometimes we think what we're doing is a good idea and we've planned and we've done everything we think we should do. And then we do it and we don't really take the time to debrief, I guess, and be like, that was just not the best thing. What can we do differently next year? And I love that it's built into such an easy framework. I do also love that you are a huge fan of Google Forms Mm. and you talk about different organizational systems, if you will, to help keep families on track. And I think a lot of people, I'm totally a form person, right? That is my love language. (laughs) I'm not a super spreadsheet person, but a good solid Google Doc, like, yes. Google Doc, yes. Yes, that, you know, you're speaking my language. But there are folks who have trouble with that. And I do actually think about folks who don't think linearly, you know, like maybe folks with adult ADHD. Like there are folks that just have a hard time with that. And I'm wondering, how does that work? And I'm sure you've seen it in families that you've worked with or have come across where they're like, maybe it's the one partner who's more organized. Like, what do you say to people who are like, Google Forms for my family? What are you talking about? So the main thing I say to people in that setting is like, I I get it that like wholly embracing a life of Google Forms is perhaps not for everybody. But if you reflect on kind of what you are doing and what are the things that are pain points for many of us, we sort of step back and we said, okay, if I think about the last few weeks, like what was annoying, Mm, you know, or what mm -hmm. made me unhappy? Like, what do I wish we had done that we hadn't done? That there may be an opportunity there to do just a little bit of deliberate thinking. Because really like the tagline of the book is like, try to be more deliberate in your choice, try to be more deliberate in your parenting. Mm -hmm. And that can go whole hog into like, fill out these worksheets and have your Google forms and have your 4F system. Or it could go into like, just tell me like, what's a pain point? And I think, let me give you one example of someone who told me, you know, Basically, we read this. It's like a lot of stuff, but we did one thing, which is we decided that we would sit down at the beginning of the week and decide who would do daycare pickup every day in advance. Because it turned out we were fighting about it every day. And somebody was like, oh, you do it, you do it. And then a huge amount of conflict was removed by just deciding on Sunday who was going to do it every day. And that's like such a small thing. Yes. But if you think about like arguing with your partner every day and being annoyed, that's also not good. Yeah. It makes me think of Eve Rodsky's book, Fair Play. Mm -hmm. And I imagine that stuff like this, these decisions and, you know, while you are, if you're in a partnered relationship or co-parenting at some level, there is that okay, I'm going to handle this and you're going to handle that. And that can help take out the tension that you talk about. And I can think of many instances that I've encountered and I'm not partnered. So it would be even like with my teen, right? And I'm like, I'm waking her up every morning for work. Okay. And this is really annoying. And she gets mad at me and that I don't love because there are lots of things that teenagers are mad at me about in my house. Like maybe I can eliminate this one. So how do we do that? And I know that is a little different, of course, in context, but the idea that you can find a system, even though if you don't think you're a system person, it doesn't need to be this extensive spreadsheet. It can just be like you said, okay, who's doing what? Yeah. So that we're not fighting about it. You know, Liz and I have always joked that there is no guidebook to parenting, right? Because we're dealing with humans, we're dealing with our own humans. But I was so fascinated that, you know, you found 
a lot of things based on the data that were, I don't want to say true, because that's not really a great researchy word, right? This is true. But, you know, I just looked at the whole kids need sleep thing. Uh And I admittedly, when they were younger, was pretty strict about bedtimes. They're older now. There's four of them. It's a lot to manage. And I'm not as strict, but I will say reading that, I was like, whoa. So what were some of the other things that you maybe found surprising or interesting when you dug into the data in terms of how parents can maybe parent better? Yeah. So I think one that was quite informative to me was the work about extracurriculars Mm. in some of the spaces that I inhabit. People really tend to think of extracurriculars as a kind of like investment in some type of success. And I think it's generally been true that like, at least in the US, extracurriculars have become much more Mm pre-professional. You know, not that you're literally going to be like a professional pianist, but like once you you like pick an extracurricular and you're going to invest and people have told me very extreme things like, you know, I'm going to have my kid do this sport because I heard that the Ivy League school is like people from Houston who do this particular sport. I mean, stuff that just seems like totally, totally out of, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But, you know, even if you're not in that range, I think people are sort of thinking about these extracurriculars as like something that's going to contribute in some way to your child's achievement. When you actually dig into the data on like, what's the value of extracurriculars? We do have some data suggesting that extracurriculars are beneficial, but the main thing that they're beneficial for is some kind of socio-emotional health Mm. that, you know, these are a place, if you think about what's hard about being a kid, what's hard about being an adolescent, you feel like you don't fit in. That's the, you know, socio-emotional, like step one is just, you know, feeling like you don't belong. And we know that the sort of human feeling of belonging is really important. Extracurriculars turn out to be like a way to engender that kind of belonging. You know, if you don't feel like school is going great, you have this other thing that you like or you're good at or like feeds you in some other way, that that is really valuable. But it's valuable because it makes you happy. It's valuable because it's a a sort of external social environment. It's not valuable because it's going to get you into college. Mm. And I think that we sort of miss that. And it's problematic to miss that motivation because it should influence what you want your kid to do. Like it should matter that your kid enjoys the activity and that they are around kids that they like or or helping them in some way to be happy. And so for me, that really reshaped how I think about extracurriculars with my kids as sort of like, this is something that should be a thing that feeds you as opposed to a thing that feeds some like external pressure. That's so valuable, particularly as a parent of children who play in youth sports and have really always felt that it is about learning valuable life skills, right? About like working with other people. And like you said, social emotional stuff. I don't have any belief that my kids will be pro sports players. I don't think they do either, (laughs) quite frankly. And I mean, that's also the way that I've approached it. But it is challenging when you do have a kid, especially when they're older, like middle school age, it is really hard now to start something new Yeah, because people have been playing things <laughs> since they were like three years old. You know, we lived in Atlanta. I moved up here and my son started ice skating and he was like seven. And there have been kids who were on ice skates like since they were two. Right. And you're just like, okie dokie. Like, okay, yeah, right. catch up on that. All right, cool. <laughs> it's like, yes. it's like oh, Okay. You know, so I think in particular that extracurricular piece is so interesting. And I hope that folks really key into that. We get a lot of questions about that in particular. Um, Let's talk about this big picture concept, right? Which is like a mission and the principles for your family. And when I was reading it, I was thinking, gosh, are people doing this when they're pregnant? I mean, because I was like, my birth plan, you know, I want my doula to only play classical music. And, you know, like, (laughs) that's what I was thinking about. And I, I look at it now and I'm like, oh my gosh, 
It's so valuable. It's so important. So just talk a little bit about what I'm speaking of, as you know, you wrote it, what the big picture actually entails. You know, we've been dancing around the elephant in the room, which is like, you're like an economist. I mean, I know you're a parent, but like, I love that you're bringing that vantage point, that experience into the parenting world. And I'm wondering, is that something that came from that background? Is the big picture from that or not? So the idea in the big picture is that, you know, when you are going to embark on this parenting journey or in the middle of it or embarking at some point, it is good, valuable, either alone or if you are partnered with your partner to think about what is your mission, where are you trying to get to, what are the things you want to prioritize, what are the kind of values that are most important, but also in a very practical sense, what are the things that are actually like the parts of your day that are most important or the things that you most want to make sure happen every day. And those could be as mundane as like, I think a priority is that my kids are sleeping a lot. Mm -hmm, That could be mm -hmm. something that's important. Bedtime could be a priority or family dinner could be a priority. And the exercises in the book are in some ways designed to help people kind of write those things down and talk about them so you can get on the same page, either the same page with yourself or the same page with your partner about what are the things that we're going to be prioritizing when we create schedules or we think about, you know, the choices that we're making as a family. You know, I think it's interesting, like as an economist, the place that sort of my background as an economist feeds most into this Mm -hmm. is in the practicality. You know, economists tend to be like very literal. And so there's a discussion about, you know, having a mission statement and stating your values. And I think that for some people, that's really resonant. The idea, like, they're like, I love that idea. Like, I Mm want to have a mission Mm -hmm. statement. Yes, that can be my lodestar. For me, actually, personally, the practical things are much more valuable. Mm -hmm. That a way for me to communicate the mission that I have is to say every day, these are the three things I want to do. And these are the three things, you know, that are most important to me about the daily life of my kids. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of like economists. We're all just like very practical and boring. (laughs) (laughs) I would not say that based on the last 25 minutes. I disagree with that. Okay. Unless you're an anomaly. (laughs) I think I I am a somewhat unusual. I don't know if they're all boring, but I am probably somewhat unusual for an economist. (laughs) Well, here's the deal. People can get the family firm wherever they get their book. You can request it at your local bookstore. You can request it at your library. As authors, I know it's very appreciated. And folks can find you Prof Emily Oster. That's O-S-T-E-R on Instagram and Twitter and also at emilyoster.net. And of course, we will link everything up, the book, all the links that we spoke about earlier on in the podcast and our Cool Picks of the Week on coolmompicks.com. And we'll be right back with our Cool Picks of the Week after this. This episode of Spawn is brought to you by Kids TV. Kids TV is a surprising, fun, and safe app designed for kids up to seven years old that stimulates learning, promotes diversity, and brings families together. All the content on Kids TV is selected by teachers and other specialists, and it's filtered by age to make things easier for parents. And yes, we like when things are easier for us. Kids TV has lots of kids' favorite songs, learning videos, activities, and popular shows like Pink Fong, Sunny Bunnies, Lottie Dottie Chicken, Mo Lang, and more. Plus, with the holidays just around the corner, they've put together some super cool holiday playlists that kids would will love. So here's what you want to do. Go to kidsbtv.com to start your free trial, or you can just search kidsbtv at your favorite app store. That's kidsbtv.com, B-E-E-T-V.com to start your free trial, or you can search kidsbbeetv at your favorite app store. 
All right, it's time for Cool Picks of the Week. Cool Picks of the Week. Emily, you are my guest. That means you get to go first. My Cool Pick of the Week is the app Paprika, which is the app that we use to organize dinner in my house. And you can write down the schedule for dinner and it links to recipes and it links to all like recipe browsers. And it is just amazing. I have heard of Paprika. You know, we do have a site called Cool Mom Eats. I have seen it on that site. I obviously did not write that piece. And I have wondered because I've heard very similar things. It sounds very magical. And is it free? It's easy to download and start using? It is easy to download. Versions of it are free. And like I've learned from my children, everything has in-app purchases. Um, (laughs) Yes, they are our best teachers (laughs) when it comes to that. Yes, that's how you learn. For $1.99, you can get, you know, jewels or something. <laughs> That's amazing. All right. So the Paprika app, love that. Um, I oddly enough, is it because it's Thanksgiving coming up? Is that why we have food on You've the got brain? A food thing too. I don't okay. know. We probably do. I totally have a food thing. It's hilarious. So I'm typically a very staunch pumpkin pie person at Thanksgiving. We must have pumpkin pie. But I have to say, one of our writers on Cool Mom Eats found a recipe for that big, gigantic Reese's peanut butter cup. Did you see that? I don't know if you saw no. it. It's like it's like a pie-sized peanut butter cup. Wow. And it sold out in like a minute. Of course it did. Uh, But we have a recipe. And I have to say, I'm very tempted. It gets very good reviews. You know, part of me would think that that would be like super overwhelming as like a piece of pie. I don't know. That's like a lot, right? I know. We used to, during the pandemic, I started making these like peanut butter chocolate bar things. They were very good. That's kind of the same idea. Yeah. They're pretty easy. Yeah, exactly. Right. So anyway, if folks are like, "Uh, I know this is going to run actually after Thanksgiving, but you know what? You can There's have- never a bad time no. for a giant Reese's peanut butter pie. I completely agree with you. There is never, ever a bad time. So we will link up the Paprika app and also my recipe, or actually not my own recipe, but the recipe to this Reese's copycat peanut butter pie over on our website. Thanks so much for joining us for another episode of Spawn. Huge thanks to our guest, Emily Oster, and our awesome engineer, John Bowen. If you've got a moment and you can leave us a five-star review, we would greatly appreciate your time. You know, when you do that, when you subscribe, when you download our episodes, it really helps other listeners like you find us. You already knew that, though. We tell you every week. Are you tired of hearing it? Well, if you are, too bad. (laughs) You can also join us on Facebook. We have the Spawn podcast community where we publish the podcast first. So if you're resistant to subscribing, you can join our Facebook group. We also talk about all kinds of fun things, serious things, all the things there. And of course, OutTech Your Kids and Recipe Rescue. You know, we chat about tech and food and everything that parents are talking about these days, especially this time of year. Holidays, holidays, holidays. Thank you so much for listening to Spawn. This is Kristen. Have a great day. Bye. Oh, hey there. How's it going? You know, I just wanted to give a little shout out to our friends, Mindy Thomas and Guy Raz, who just happen to be the hosts of Wow in the World. Yes, you know that podcast. Maybe you don't, but guess what? Now you do. We've even had them on as guests back when that show launched. In fact, how could we forget that Guy's cool pick of the week was turmeric? Guess what? We have never forgotten that. Well, they've got an extra special episode that we want to tell you about. So Guy and Mindy are hosting a talent show, and they're so happy to have their whole community together again now that the COVID vaccine is available for everyone. But when they realize their buddy Dennis has a fear of needles and has not been vaccinated, they help him understand 
the who, what, when, whys, and wows of vaccines. You can listen to the episode Destination Vaccination wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, be sure to subscribe to Wow in the World so you don't miss an episode. That's Destination Vaccination, which by the way, good follow-up for kids to our own episode that we did with Dr. Preethi Parikh about the COVID vaccine for kids 5 through 11. Anyway, you can find them wherever you listen to Spawned. 